my name's Tori and I wish I knew more about blood products. Hi, my name's Letitia. I wish I knew more about taking care of myself when starting shift work. Hi, my name is Lydia. I wish I would know more about how to work as in a team and solve conflict. Hello, welcome to Five Things, the nursing podcast from the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. My name is Liz Crow. I'm Jesse Spur, and this is a podcast by, for, and with the amazing nurses and health professionals in our corner of the world. We hope to connect with the global community as we move from surviving to thriving. Welcome to Five Things. Hello, my name is Liz Crow. And I'm Jesse Spur. And today we are going to speak about five things to do with the kidney with Samantha Holman, who is the nurse educator here at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. So welcome, Sam. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Awesome. So Sam, um, we'd like to get to know a little bit of your background and sort of how you got to where you're at now. Yeah, absolutely. So originally I actually wanted to be a forensic scientist and I had no idea about nursing or anything to do with that. It happened because I was working in a laboratory and I saw a lot of patients' um, blood results coming through and you kind of felt a bit sad that I didn't get to know anybody. I don't think I thought I would make a big difference to anybody's lives any better than anyone else who was already doing it. But I thought it would be nice to be that person who's there for people when they're having a hard time. And so that's what got me into nursing to start with. Renal nursing, I was really lucky to uh, work in the liver and transplant ward over at the PA uh, as a student, which really was my first opening into renal. Uh, And my mum also had kidney disease while I was a kid, so I saw that quite a lot. Um, But I really didn't know anything about dialysis. It was all very new to me. And when I applied for a renal rotation, I didn't really know, I guess, the extent of what I was putting my name down for. Um, Because at uni, they tell you, you get kidney failure, You'll either do dialysis, get a transplant, or you'll die, moving on. And that was basically the whole lot of it. So it's been quite an adventure to discover renal and find it. And I think it was one of my most challenging subjects at university. And I think that was what really made me want to follow it. I like a good challenge. Terrific. Run towards the things you're scared of. Yeah, that's it. It's like, you're not going to beat me. I can do this. Awesome. So when we asked the new graduates, actually the topic of wanting to learn more about the kidney was one of the most popular um, things that were requested. So everybody's looking forward to this. So can you start with your number one thing that we need to understand about kidneys? I think to understand things about the kidneys, you need to really know what they do. So I think a lot of people know they make urine and I think that's probably most people's extent out in the general population. They do an awful lot more than just making urine and even making urine is really, really complex. So they do a lot of things in terms of removing waste products and toxins from our body. So those metabolic wastes like urea uh, and creatinine, they remove excess electrolytes. So it helps to balance out like your potassium, your calcium in the blood, uh, regulates the volume of your fluid. So it works with your blood pressure and makes sure we don't have a fluid overload. Um, And it also regulates the blood pH, um, which is really important to make sure that we're we're well and healthy. It does some other things on the side, which influence your red blood cell creation and also regulating your vitamin D. So it's actually much more complex than just making wee. Yeah. And so for a tiny organ, it does a lot of work. Yeah. And I mean, we're lucky that we have two of them um, because obviously it is an awful lot of work to go through and it's an awful lot of blood that it filters every minute. So I think it's one of those underrated organs. We seem to forget about it. I know in ICU... 
we do have a lot of focus on our other organs because our kidneys, we can do some replacement therapy, but I think we sort of forget how much they're actually doing for us. Yeah. Interesting. So that was your number one. What does a, a healthy kidney actually do? Your number two is what are the acute warning signs that the kidney is unwell? Yeah, so I thought this was a really important one for all our new grads and our experienced nurses out there because we get a lot of patients who come in and they might have chronic kidney disease and that's usually, we don't usually pick that up on admission, um, but a lot of our patients might come through and end up with an acute kidney injury or worsening of their chronic kidney disease. So it's really important if we can pick that up early, it means we're more likely to be able to reverse it, we're more likely to be able to make sure our patients are well and make it through their hospital stay. So... I think one thing that we don't do as well as we possibly could is around things like fluid balance. Uh, I think it's probably one of the least filled-in charts uh, paperwork that we get when patients are admitted. And it just gives us an idea of what's going in and what's coming out, which is the basic sort of heads up that something's happening with the kidney. We're putting a lot of fluid in and we're getting very little out. It's a bit of a worry because obviously the kidney's not um, functioning as we'd expect it to. So that's a really big warning sign. Yeah, and PUIT doesn't really cut the mustard that yeah, much, does it? That's it, because, you know, you can go in and they could urinate 50 mils or it could be a whole litre. There's a lot of variation. Yeah. So I think that's that's something that I, I don't know what the avoidance, why there's that avoidance there for starting a fluid balance chart, obviously, other than the perceived workload of doing it. If there's one thing from the podcast that you yeah. take away, it's, it's going, that's actually a really critical piece of information to track how someone's going. Yeah, and I think a lot of nurses are hesitant to, I guess, implement a full fluid balance chart because you don't want to remove a patient's independence. So when they're going to the bathroom and they're moving and mobilising independently, you want to try and maintain that. But it's so it's a bit hard to try and strike that balance. But the best thing you can do is talk to your patients and ask them to work with you. Uh, You know, that partnering with consumers um, part that we're talking about quite a lot. Yeah. So obviously fluid balance is one. What's some other signs that your kidneys are unwell? So obviously I'm not a nurse, I'm a lay person. Is it true like the colour of your urine is an indication of things or is that a bit of a... So the colour of urine can give you a bit of an information about how well hydrated somebody is. It's a little bit tricky when people aren't urinating as much as they normally would uh, because when you're looking at the colour of urine, you're really looking at two different things. You're looking at how much of our waste products are in there and then how diluted they are. So if you're putting out quite a lot of volume of urine uh, but not great quality, it might look like that sort of straw colour that you're looking for. And conversely as well, I guess, if you've got a reduced amount of volume being removed but you've got quite a lot of um, your electrolytes and the waste products going through, it's going to come through quite dark. So it's not something you'd use in isolation. Okay, good to know. And what other things should we be keeping an eye out for when the kidney's unwell? Like, what are the other symptoms? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the easiest things we can look at is um, the presence of edema. So depending on how your patient is, if they're independent, a lot of the time you'll see edema into the legs. Um, And if they're potentially in their bed and not able to mobilise, you're going to see that a lot on the sacrum as well. And it's about, I guess, making sure when they come in, you know what their baseline is because a lot of our patients will have other comorbidities that might create edema in the legs and whatnot. Um, But if you know what they come in with, you can see if it's worsening. You can see if patients suddenly have quite a lot of edema, that puffiness in the face as well. Um, So you know where you're starting from. Yep. Okay. 
And I guess you mentioned the, the acute on chronic um, component of, of kidney disease and when someone's coming in with an infection or something else. I guess the big friend for us is that people who have established chronic kidney, kidney disease will often have many, many sets of blood results over time to look at um, some markers for that. And so we can get an indication from their blood results as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, when we're looking at our patients, one of the things I think we look at first is probably our estimated GFR. We're looking at that ability of our body to um, excrete those waste products like creatinine and urea. Um, the trouble with your EGFR is that it can be influenced by a whole lot of different things. So if someone's um, dehydrated, it may come up differently. Um, you may have other comorbidities that are influencing. And also if you've got an acute kidney injury, that can drop really your kidney function can drop quicker than your blood test results will as well. Mm. So it's something that you'd use in relation to everything else, but you'd be looking at things like your creatinine, your urea. Our big one we're looking for patients who have um, quite advanced kidney disease is looking at things like your potassium because that's something that's very quick to build up and can cause all sorts of cardiac and other issues. Yeah, terrific. So number three is your common causes of kidney disease. What are they? So you've got three main types of kidney disease. So you've got ones that are pre-renal that affect um, things before your kidney. So that might be things like a drop in blood pressure that's restricting flow into the kidney. Uh, you've got things that are intrarenal, so within the kidney, things like kidney stones or um, uh, structural abnormalities. And you've got things that are then post-renal, which is after the kidney. So that might be where you've actually um, removed the kidney stone and it's sitting in your ureter and it's actually blocking that flow of urine. So they're the main causes uh, in terms of what they're classified as. But if we look at the main um, diseases or the – sorry, I'll just start that a little bit again. Yeah. If we're looking at the main causes that we find in chronic kidney disease, there's two really uh, big ones that come to mind. So hypertension, high blood pressure is a really big one that we see, and diabetes. So when we have poorly controlled diabetes, we have – um, an increase in the blood sugar levels, which can damage those smaller, um, fine vessels, and that affects the kidneys quite a lot. So the trouble with both of those conditions is that they often boil away in the background and we might not even know about them. So it's quite tricky. We have patients who come in who have quite advanced kidney disease and had no idea they had really high blood pressure or didn't realise they had type 2 diabetes. All right, so we've now kind of worked out what does a healthy kidney look like? What does an unwell kidney look like and what are the causes of that? So what are the primary interventions or I guess the scope of interventions that we can implement when we've got any sort of issues with the kidney? Yeah, so my specialty sort of sits around where patients have advanced kidney disease. So before we get to that point, there are a lot of different interventions they can do managing diabetes, um, that high blood pressure, any other comorbidities. Um, if it's an autoimmune um, condition, there are certain medications that can be given to try and help slow that process. Once we get to a more advanced stage of kidney disease, we need to look at what our um, plans are for the future. So there are a few options that people have available. Uh, most people would be aware of uh, transplant. It's something that's talked about quite a lot and TV shows tend to cover that as a first base rather than anything else. <laughs> um, Next, we do have dialysis, and we have two different types of dialysis that we typically do. So we have hemodialysis, which is where we have a, um, a way to access the blood, put it through a filter. We do that usually three times a week for up to five hours. And so it's quite a big impost on that patient. Um, 
you can do it at home, but it is still quite a lot of time that they use for it. You've also got peritoneal dialysis, which has a little tube that runs permanently into your um, peritoneal membrane in your abdomen, and fluid is drained in and drained out over certain programs, and that can help uh, remove waste products and fluid. We've also got the option to do what's called conservative management, uh, which is more about, I guess, supporting patients to be as well as they can be without um, those renal replacement uh, therapies that we just talked about. Some of our patients, especially those who are quite frail, may do better for conservative management if you look at the time frame that they'd actually have at home. So our frail patients, uh, if they need to go to hospital and have multiple surgeries for whatever access they're having, um, if they're not doing particularly well, it could increase that frailty and they need to be in hospital a little bit more. But if we manage it conservatively, some of those patients can actually be without dialysis for a couple of years. Um, I had one patient that we knew uh, on an EGFR, I think it was about eight, and she lived happily for about two years without any renal replacement therapy, just managing her symptoms, trying to make sure we maintain whatever little function she had left. Sorry, what does EGFR mean? So it's your estimated glomerular filtration rate. Okay. What does that and mean? So it, it's basically looking at the rate at which your kidneys would f- uh, be filtering water and waste products. And they use a nice little uh, calculation from your blood. So it's not always 100% accurate, uh, but it gives you a bit of an idea of how well your kidneys are working. Right. And so usually um, if you don't have any kidney disease, it'd be greater than 90 is the reference range. And when you need dialysis, it's usually probably less than 15 or 10 or less, depending on where you go. So we often talk about it as a percentage yep, uh, because it's easy for patients to understand. So if we say you've got 15% kidney function left, that gives a pretty clear picture that it's not working very well. Ah, okay. Yeah. And so when we're talking about conservative management, um, I'm assuming that's things like um, binding agents to get rid of excess electrolytes, uh, diet diet and fluid restrictions, those sorts of things. Am I missing anything? Um, it can also be some things around, I guess, managing other symptoms. Yeah. So when patients start dialysis, is different for everybody. Some people it is because of the bloods and the concern with hyperkalemia or the urea buildup. And for some patients, that trigger is more that symptom burden that they have. So they've tried to manage that before they get to dialysis. But we've had patients who've started dialysis because the associated symptoms with having um, such advanced kidney disease is actually quite overwhelming. So one of the big things in conservative management is making sure people are comfortable, they get to enjoy their life, they see their friends and family, and it's about making sure that they actually enjoy the time they have with people. Yeah. I'm curious too, because you mentioned home dialysis being an option. I imagine there's some complexity. How How is that determined whether that's going to be suitable for a particular patient? Yeah, that's a great question. Because I think question. everyone's going to go, yeah, I want to do it at home. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, I actually used to work um, in home dialysis quite a few years ago. Um, but certainly it is a bit challenging. Uh, for a lot of our patients, we would do a review of like their functioning, what their home life might be like. We In rural Brisbane, we send people to a area called transition and they often look at that sort of side of things of what is the ideal renal replacement for them. Is hemodialysis the one that is most suitable or PD? And they also look at whether they could go home. So there's social components, making sure that if they need someone to be there with them, they have someone for them. Um, they're able to make it to other appointments because it can be quite tricky for patients to get in when they potentially don't have quite as much contact. 
um, going to home visits. So are they suitable if we can go to home visits? And then there's a lot around things like dexterity, problem solving, and being able to put needles in is the other thing. Which is they having to access their own fistulas? Yeah, yeah. so our patients who go home um, generally go home with um, AV access or a fistula or a graft. And it means either them or a loved one is usually putting in needles for them. Yeah. yeah. Which is quite a challenge, I think, for a lot of people to overcome, yeah. um, which is completely understandable. Yeah. The other one you mentioned as well, and I don't know that there's a, a great knowledge around, um, even in hospitals and healthcare, about peritoneal dialysis. Do you mind just elaborating a little bit on that and who that can sometimes be suitable for? Yeah, absolutely. So peritoneal dialysis is really good for patients who have some kind of residual function. So usually when they have a little bit of urine output to help support it, it's facilitated through a tube that goes into the stomach. It's permanently there held in by a nice little diamicron cuff um, where fluid is um, transported in, transported out. could be done using a machine or done manually by the patient themselves. And it's something that you really do need to be able to maintain by yourself and have that dexterity and that Ability to see what you're doing is really important because it's a high infection risk if you're, if you're touching anything that you shouldn't be. Yeah, right. So is that basically just pop fluid into the peritoneal cavity and then osmosis, um, osmotic shift causes the, yeah. the solutes to sort of move into that fluid and then gets drawn out? Yeah, <laughs> Like absolutely. a washout? Yeah, so the, yeah. The, the fluid that we drain in um, usually has glucose in it to create that... Um, that pressure gradient to try and draw things across. And depending on how much uh, glucose you've got and what your patient's like, it'll sit in there for some time while things sort of shift across, they drain it out and put the new stuff in. So, yeah, it's it's really quite simple when you think about it. it but it obviously takes quite a lot to make sure the patients are safe, make sure that they're getting the clearances that they need. So it can be quite challenging, I think. Yeah. yeah. I want to revisit this whole idea of conservative treatment mm-hmm. Um, you meet people every now and then who are on fluid restrictions or uh, some dietary requirements because they've got renal failure. What are the primary things that people have to watch with regards to diet or fluids? Because I imagine that sometimes these patients present on the wards. Yeah, absolutely. So I think anyone with um, advanced stage of kidney disease really need to be mindful of things like your fluid and your potassium, your two big things. And it depends on what kind of um, renal replacement you're doing as to how far that sort of extends, but most patients will have some sort of fluid restriction and some restriction around potassium. Um, potassium is a really big one because it's something that can cause quite immediate effects. So if we have a really high potassium, you're likely to have cardiac arrhythmias and, and be quite at risk of a, a cardiac arrest. So that's why we're quite funny about potassium. Um, we also look out for um, phosphate, more of a long-term um, strategy because when you have your phosphate uh, too elevated for too long, it actually causes calcification in your vessels, it causes all sorts of other nasty complications like calciphylaxis. And, um, so that one's a bit of a long-term one, but the short-term, certainly fluid and potassium are our big worries when they come into the ward. Yeah. Okay. I remember um, when I was working in my first job in ICU, um, it was in private and there was a renal physician that would come in and see his patients that ended up in ICU. And um, one set of notes I was reading was that he'd um, seen out in public his this patient uh, 
coming out of KFC as he was driving past and he's written in there that he'd had a counselling conversation about um, avoidance of KFC because of the um, phosphate and potassium line. Yeah, well, yeah, it is quite tricky. We have had patients that have come in with their um, their fast food takeaway thinking, I'll eat this before dialysis and then when I'm on it'll take it all out and it's a little bit more complex than that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I guess it must be very hard for patients to be told that this is something you have to limit for basically forever. Yeah. Yeah. So I think when we're having conversations with patients, it's more about finding that balance. And I think for some patients as well, remembering that our goals for their health may not necessarily align with theirs. So we may have somebody who is on conservative management but isn't as worried about those sorts of side of things. They're happy to take that as a risk or they would like to improve their quality of life and they take that information on board. But at the end, that's, that's their choice to do things. So, yeah. Yeah. So interesting. All right. So your number five is why looking after the kidney is so very important. The main reason is there is no cure for kidney disease. Um, even though we have really good processes for transplantation, that still doesn't cure uh, people of their conditions because a lot of the times those things may reoccur. Uh, they take multiple medications to make sure that their transplant is functioning and doesn't fail. So we need to be really mindful that kidney, kidney disease is for life. Um, Kidneys as well have a really nice little relationship with your heart. They're like best friends. So if your heart has some trouble, your kidneys probably do and vice versa. So if we're looking after our kidneys, we're also looking after other things in our body as well. And our heart is one of those big things that we want to make sure that we're, we're tracking along quite nicely because we can do dialysis for kidneys, a little bit more complex if you're having issues with your heart. Now, you may not know the answer to this, but is there an optimal amount about how much fluids you should drink? Because, you know, they used to say 10 glasses and now it doesn't. And I'm married to a doctor who doesn't drink anywhere near enough water and we're constantly, I'm saying, you know, if I can smell your urine, you haven't had enough to drink. And he's like, that's a load of waffle. Is any of that true? Can you Does solve- he tell you to get out of yes. the toilet when he's using it? <laughs> can you solve this marital problem? Is, is, is that all? You know, because then I, I read something recently which he put under my nose to say, see, I told you it's got nothing to do with renal, you know, yeah. renal health. I think I'll preface this by saying that my specialty is trying to help people drink less uh, for the most part because <laughs> our patients are on dialysis. So I'm not an expert in terms of making sure that you're well hydrated. Um, but I guess the main takeaway is it's different for everybody. I know that the eight glasses, the two litres that they sort of brought in was kind of like a benchmark. It's something that doesn't necessarily apply to everybody. People are different sizes. You're doing different exercise. I mean, if you sweat more, you drink more. If you're having um, issues with your GI tract, drink more water. Um, but certainly I think it's about making sure that we keep an eye on what our urine colour looks like, keep in touch with how we're feeling, making sure that we're not thirsty because usually by the time we're thirsty, we're already starting to be dehydrated. Um, but, yeah, certainly if you've got a fluid restriction, don't listen to any of that stuff and listen to your doctor. But, yeah, it's a tricky one, right? It's different for everyone. You want a nice little packaged up answer. And I don't so really we could both one. be right. Is that what you're saying? Just in case he listens. But Nick, drink more water. <laughs> When I was 18, I was incidentally found to have hypertension. Um, when I was at uni doing exercise science and we were doing an exercise assessment and prescription, got my blood pressure taken for probably the first time I could remember um, and found to have high blood pressure, in, long story short, investigated and um, 
essential hypertension but it's something that then I've been really conscious of right through to now in my early 40s keeping an eye on I'm really conscious a lot of people will probably get into their 40s and um, possibly even 50s and never have had their blood pressure checked um, so that's something that's probably a pretty high yield thing in terms of being an early precursor to your likely kidney disease risk yeah absolutely so when you have long time uh, long-term hypertension it means you've got that pressure in your kidneys for quite a long time and it's that slow incremental damage that you're not likely to notice especially if you've got hypertension and it sits there so you don't get the headaches you don't get the other symptoms you normally would um, I know when we did our kidney health week, we had a nice little stand a couple of years ago where people would come in and get their blood pressures taken and we sent a couple of people to emergency with blood pressure. Wow. So and that's staff. So that was either staff or patients coming yeah. through that had no idea that they had high I, blood I pressure. I bet ED loved that day. Yeah, I'm sure. They were like, <laughs> thank you very much. Um, but, I mean, the thing is to get a blood pressure done is so simple. You don't even need to go to your doctor necessarily. Mm. You can go and check in with your pharmacist. Um, you can buy ones over the counter if you want to have something at home. Um, the big thing is making sure you do your blood pressure at rest because if you've just run up a whole heap of stairs and you're like, oh, my goodness, my blood pressure is 160 over 90, uh, maybe sit for five minutes, have a cool drink because we want to look at what it is at rest. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. Right, Sam, I feel like I've learned a lot about the kidney today and I'm going to try and simplify and work through what we've just learned. So number one, what does a healthy kidney do? And I've learned that it's a lot more than just looks after your urine and manages your fluid. It's also your chief organ responsible for cleaning the blood. Uh, and so it's a, it is really important. Number two was acute warning signs that the kidney is unwell. And that can start with urine output and managing your fluids, uh, looking at things like blood pressure, blood tests, and looking out for edema. Number three was common causes of kidney disease. And you talked about pre-renal, intra-renal and post-renal, but really the two big ticket items are diabetes and hypertension. Number four, interventions for the kidney. And you spoke about, you know, you can do things conservatively. So that can be diet and fluid restrictions. It can be medications. And then we look at um, dialysis, which can be hemodialysis, which is, you know, cleaning the blood, peritoneal dialysis, which is uh, through a little tube in the membrane in the abdomen. Uh, people talk about this quite flippantly, you know, about being on dialysis or transplant, but I guess the big take-home is these things are really invasive in someone's life. Um, they're really serious conditions and we want to look after the kidney, which is your number five point. Why we need to look after the kidney, it is an essential little organ. It works very, very hard and we have no cure. Yeah, that's it. Sam, thank you so much for teaching us five things about the kidney. Happy to help. Thanks, Sam. The Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital Five Things Nursing Podcast acknowledges the Turrbal and Yagara as the First Nations owners of the lands we now tread. We pay respect to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of healing, teaching and learning. We also wish to acknowledge the First Nations people of the lands of our global community and encourage our listeners to seek out, listen and learn from the knowledge held in your shared space. As well as all major podcast outlets, you can find us at 5thingsnursing.podbean.com. 
please also subscribe and give us a rating on your listening platform of choice. This helps others find the podcast. And finally, if you'd like to connect with Liz or myself on Twitter, we can be found at LizCrow2. And for me, it's inject underscore orange. We would absolutely love to hear your thoughts, ideas, or feedback. Thanks for listening to Five Things 